Oh, yeah. And I love Kremlin. Oh, dude, true story. I have like a, uh, on the back of my bike, I have one of those uh, racky things you can attach stuff to. For, for Yeah. And attached to the back of it, I actually have a Bort license plate from Itchy and Scratchy Land. There you go. It's actually a uh, repurposed iPhone case that I found on uh, Amazon.com from a... Uh, uh, Chinese vendor of dubious legality, <laughs> but I have it on my bike. And sometimes when I'm at a red light, someone will roll the window down and say, hey, my son's name is also Bort. You know, that's going to be the name of my uh, my new wave band, uh, Chinese distributor of questionable legality. Oh, okay. That's a, but I yet, think of that's course, a my standard name. response when someone says, my, my son's name is also Bort, I say, well, why not? It's a perfectly cromulent name. There you go. Hi, everyone. Tim Kittrow, and you're listening to the Pie Factory Podcast. Boom shakalaka. Yeah, we've kind of thrown it by the wayside as to who introduces the show yeah, these who days, cares? haven't we? Really, who cares? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. If one of us does it, then we've both done our job. Yeah, and if neither of us has done it, then uh, we don't have a episode at all. Well, not technically true. Or something. We could still. We could have uh, somebody else introduce it. I could uh, probably pull one of my kids in here to introduce the show. Oh. That might be interesting, actually. Hmm. But I don't think any of them want to do it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So. So I guess uh, we're doing episode 80 right now? 8-0. 80 episodes. I can't believe that we've gone this yeah. far. Plus uh, the uh, episode zero, so it's kind of 81 episodes. And the uh, extra episode we did that didn't count, so that's... Well, if, well, if it did count, then this would... Well, well there's two know. episodes that didn't count. We had a zero and the radio episode. So well, that, yeah, that's two. what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, something so uh, like we've that. come so far. And, and episode 15 was a two-parter that came out in two different installments. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. Um, I don't know. What, what matters is, I guess, that uh, uh, you, uh, Jimmy G, and I, Sean, are here to mm-hmm. talk arcade games. Talk gaming. We've actually also had a bit of news uh, in the meantime, but oh. uh, we can get to that in a minute. But I just want to know, what have you been playing, Sean? I have been... Pl- Seriously, actually, I've been playing... Uh, since we um, did the previous episode, I've been playing Millipede a lot in MAME. Really? And I, don't, I, I just got hooked again. I just I just got hooked, and I can't... And I'm planning to go to Underground Retrocade probably not this Friday, but Friday the um, 24th after work. Mm-hmm. And I'll probably be spending a lot of time at the Millipede machine... At that point. So I've been playing a lot of Millipede, and of course I've been playing the games that uh, we're going to be talking about now. Uh, I start, just today, I started playing Serpentine for the 7800, and that's going to be a fun game. Oh, man. I know you've been talking about that, and I, well, not been talking about it, but I saw the post on uh, on Atari Age about that game, and they said it was based on an Atari 8-bit computer game, and I've actually been playing that on my uh, 65XE uh, just to get the feel of it. Oh gosh, that's a fun. That's a real fun game. Now, something that I it, apparently it's actually uh, apparently based on an Apple II game, and the Apple II version is the only one that has, I think, like twenty one different mazes or something, and all the other uh, ones have five. I could have sworn it was based on the Odyssey two game, uh, Casey's Crazy Chase. It may have predated it, but I'm not sure. Okay, which would not shock me that a KC game on the Odyssey two would. Uh, be a clone of a already existing <laughs> game or a video pack for those of you not in the United States. Yes. 
Oh, and you know, I um, one of the reasons we've been away from our listeners for a long time is because I had the nerve to go on vacation. My wife and I flew out to San Diego, spent a few days there, and then we drove up the coast up to San Francisco, spent a few days there. Didn't do any gaming during that trip other than in the hotel room firing up MAME. One thing, I just wanted to mention this because, um, as you probably know, Ian Ferguson from the uh, CU podcast, was it Com- Completely Useless podcast? Uh, completely was, Unnecessary Completely Unnecessary podcast. podcast. Yes. He runs a video game store in San Diego. I think it's called Luna. Yeah, it's called Luna. 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 So yeah. when I was in the hotel room, I looked up Luna. I was like, hmm, maybe I can uh, drive over there. Check it out. Thing is, like, it was 15 miles away from where we were staying. I was like, man, I'm not going to go all the way. <laughs> it's like, no matter where I am, the video game store is close, but yet inconvenient. Not easy <laughs> to get to. Because uh, video games then and now, the Sean Kelly store, it's pretty much just due west of where I live. But it takes for freaking ever to get there. And it's not all that far either. Mm-hmm. But you have to zigzag through the, the grid of the city. You have to actually take Interstate 90 for a while which itself is a challenge. I don't know. I don't know. Sorry, Ian, that I didn't get to stop in, but maybe next time. I'm sure he's heartbroken. Yeah. He's probably going to be like, who the hell is this guy? (laughs) Oh, and something I learned. uh, I know this doesn't come anywhere near answering your question, but I started hearing about this guy named Jimmy Garoppolo, who is a quarterback for the 49ers. Yeah. And he's from Arlington Heights, by the way. Okay. He went to Rolling Meadows. Well, we don't care about where he went to high school, but here's something we might want to look into. Well, you mainly. Um, he might be infringing on you a little bit. You know what he calls himself? Oh, oh no. Jimmy, Jimmy G. G. Yep. Well, there are other people, Jimmy G. Long time ago, I was looking and I made up like this seasoning mixture and I was thinking about marketing it and I was going to call it Jimmy G's, you know, whatever. Come to find out there's already a Jimmy G's restaurant somewhere near Pittsburgh and that. So, meh. Ah. It's common. We'll sue I guess. them too. How dare you take a name before I can yeah. steal it? I don't know. Oh, by the way, there's there's like this noise going on in the background on my end. Um, that's the sound of my iMac and, and a brand new SSD, like restoring a backup. Because uh, yeah, we were gonna record this the night before we're actually recording this. So I turned on my iMac. It's been sitting off for two weeks. I turned it on and just got a white screen, no boot. Turns Took out a crap and didn't wipe. Yep, and the SSD apparently fried. Well, definitely fried. So I had some fun taking up. You know how much fun it is taking apart an iMac because you have to oh, do that to no. swap the uh, the drive. I'll tell you what though, it's you got you actually need a pair of suction cups because there's a cover over the monitor that you have to remove, and it's held on by these really, really, really freaking strong magnets. Oh jeez! You actually need suction cups to pull it off. And then you have to remove the monitor itself. Then there are four cables you have to disconnect. So I did all that, and uh, definitely I determined for sure it was the, the SSD because I was scared that it might have been one of the connector cables or something. And I didn't know if those were easily sourced. But no, I, I tried to mount the SSD on my laptop. It, it wouldn't be recognized. So it was definitely the, the drive itself. So I ordered a new drive, came in today. I have it in now. It, it's recognized and everything. So now it's running a restore. And the problem is a running a restore causes the fan to go haywire. And so that's what that little noise is. If people hear noise when I talk. So yay, uh, me, uh, Jimmy G sorry to monopolize things, but what have you been playing slash doing slash caring about since, uh, we recorded episode 79? 
Well, I haven't been caring about a lot of things, but as far as playing, I said that I was playing uh, Serpentine on my Atari 8-bit. Um, oh, I gotta try that. I think there's a C64 version of it, too. I'll have to I'm try it on that, I'm pretty sure too. there is. But they also just recently released a conversion of uh, a homebrew of Scramble for the Atari 5200. Oh, really? And they uh, ported that soon afterwards to the, uh, the 8-bit computers. And the 8-bit computer version plays with the Sega Genesis gamepad. Uh, one button for firing and one for bombs. Oh. Um, unfortunately, I haven't gotten a chance to try it with the Sega Genesis pad, but the um, uh, with the regular joystick, it works uh, quite well, as you can imagine. You can have it set to... There, there's a lot of different settings in this. Uh, because it was ported from the 5200 version, uh, one thing they did, which actually I noticed this with the uh, the port, the homebrew port of Scramble for the uh, the Android phones, is uh, there's a difficulty sweating, which sweating, uh, sweating, yeah, because that's what I'm doing sweating, right man. now. There's no air conditioning here. Uh, there's a difficulty setting that allows you to make the passages in the later stages of the game a little bit wider, so it's easier to get through with the 5200 joysticks. The Android version has the same thing because of the control for that. In fact, I never did uh, see if my uh, 8-bit Doe controller will work with that. I found out that they released a firmware up- upgrade for the 8-bit Doe controllers, oh. which allows you to use it with the Nintendo Switch. And I have yet to try that. I've been wanting to do that. But um, but anyway, so yeah, you got to try this uh, scramble part. It's really, really good. Hmm. And... Um, it's funny because in the 8-bit forums on Atari Age, some guy said, yeah, they just released a 5200 homebrew of uh, Scramble, so I figured I'd take my hand at trying to convert it over for the 8-bits. But then the guy who programmed the 5200 version said something like, you know, you could have waited a little bit because we're in the process of doing it, and huh. here's the ROM anyway. <laughs> mm, there you so, go. Uh, there's a lot of uh, settings as far as difficulty and wideness of the, uh, of, of the tunnels. Uh, how you want the, uh, the the control button set up? Do you want to use the you know the Genesis? Do you want one button to fire, or do you want to use the space bar to drop your bombs, or you know whatever? Uh, tons of different options on that, which I really really like. Hmm. Uh, interesting. Uh, uh, just the other day, um, the Retro League was talking about uh, Scramble and, and Gradius and that, and <laughs> it's, it sounded like neither of them have actually played the arcade game. They were they were talking about the homebrew version for the fifty two hundred eight bits. Sound like neither of them played the arcade game, which uh, Scramble was fairly widely uh, available, actually. I mean, nothing on the lines of, say, an Asteroids or a Defender or anything, but uh, I've seen it pretty much every arcade I've ever been to. Uh, but there you go. I did get up to Pixel Blast because I won a free day pass uh, in one of their uh, weekly contests. If you're in the Chicago area, hit up the Pixel Blast page. Every week they have post a question. And if you're one of, one of the random people chosen, you you win a free day pass. And uh, I went up there and met up with a friend of the podcast, Mike Bowler. Hi, Mike. Hey, Mike. And uh, it was the first time he'd been in an arcade in like 30, 40 years. Oh, my. So uh, he had a good time. He was, he was playing stuff. We hit up that Euro place. And yeah. uh, we went in there, and they're like, hey, we're closing in 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, oh Just like okay. the first goes, time you and I went yeah. there. And he's like, no, 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 no. You guys are good. You guys are good. <laughs> they're, they're such nice people there. Yeah. They're, they're so I great. Like the food is so good, too. Um, I like Like them. I said, Greasy Spoon, great food. So, yeah, I had some fun up there, and um, they just announced today, I, although I did see it tucked away in a corner when I was there, but... Um, Pixel Blast is the first arcade in the Chicago area to have a Buster Brothers machine. Oh, wow. And uh, it officially, I guess, made its debut on the floor today, uh, the day we're recording this, which is August 15th. So I'm going to have to head up there uh, to play that, because that's, as you 
Uh, if loyal listeners to Pie Factory uh, realize that uh, Sean and I both really, really liked that game. I think they're the also uh, the also they're also the only arcade in the Chicago area with Snow Brothers, which is basically Bubble Bubble. Yeah, I can't get into Snow Brothers. Really. Um, it's that's not one of my favorite games. Although we do need to talk about Bubble Bobble, which I need to put yes, on the list. Yes, we do. But uh, what was I was like, oh yeah, I was talking to uh, one of the owners over there, uh, Paul Ojeda, who I was telling that uh, if you guys get iRobot, I don't think I'll be going to any other arcade in the Chicago area. <laughs> <laughs> I love that game too. So uh, there you go with that, and uh, that's pretty much all I've been doing, other than just existing. And. Yeah. Uh, Got a big bike ride this upcoming weekend and Ooh. hoping I can breathe up some of the hills, but, uh, you know, there you go. Oh, man, bike riding up the hills, man. Where we were staying in San Francisco, of course, San Francisco is nothing but hills. Town on a mountain on a bay. But I was watching people ride there, but like where Land's End is and Ocean Beach and that, that little corner of San Francisco, one of my favorite places in the world. I'm watching people like easily go down on their bikes, go downhill, make easy turns, and then I'm watching people going uphill. And this this isn't this is by far not the steepest hill in the city either. And I'm watching people in much better shape than I am struggle <laughs> with their bikes in the lowest gears. And man, my lungs were hurting watching it. Oh my goodness. Like I've said before, the Fox River Trail downtown St. Charles, Illinois for two blocks is exactly the same grade as pretty much every street in San Francisco. Yeah, um, I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, uh. Oh, it's the thinking of that. I, I saw a video over the hiatus of some people playing Mario Kart on, uh, what is it, Lombard Street, the crookedest street in the world, supposedly. Supposedly. And, Just that one part of it, of course. Yeah, and they were... Lombard uh, Street's pretty freaking long. They were long. in go-karts that looked like stuff from Mario Kart, and they all dressed up like characters, and they were throwing they were throwing banana peels at each other, and that, it was hilarious. I'll try to find that so we can link it mm. in the show notes, but that was really, really funny. Yep. So, uh, what else have I been up to? That's pretty much it. And, um... Uh, School for my kids started today. My ah. my uh, middle child, this is her first day of her last year of high school. Oh, boy. Yep. So, it don't get any easier. One day, she's holding a sippy cup in her, in her onesie. The next day, she's dating some guy named Albert, which is actually From a true. age? No. Oh. I would have no problem if she was dating him. Well, no, I guess it would have a huge yeah. problem because he's just slightly younger than me. But um, All right. No, I don't. He's, he's well, then if that's kid. everything you have, then I have yeah, something that that's I need pretty much to everything. do. All right. Um, so I am currently live on Facebook, and I look terrible. Lester's Fixin's Sweet Corn syrup, uh, Soda. Hello, yep. everybody. And here's the thing. Um, I have a backup drink with me, just oh, in case Lord. the stuff is so bad that I need to wash it down. Now, due to an affliction that I've been battling for the past few weeks, I'm drinking cranberry juice as much as I can, and uh, my wife bought me some cranberry juice today, but it's not the cranberry juice I'm used to. This stuff is really nasty. I love cranberry juice. So, let's see what's better, the sweet corn or the cranberry juice. All right, so I'm going to open this stuff. Ah. <laughs> First of all, what does it smell like? It smells... All right, this is going to sound weird, but it smells kind of like angel food cake. It actually tastes kind of like angel food cake. The aftertaste is like angel food cake. But it's kind of weird. It's... This... Yeah. This tastes okay. just like corn. But it's not bad. It's not bad. 
You like it? It's not bad. It's decent. It really is. It's better than this cranberry juice I'm drinking. Trader Joe's cranberry juice. Oh, nasty. no. Nasty, nasty. <sighs> now, now that's fact, impossible. Pour, where, oh, now it disappeared. Where's my cranberry juice? Oh, here it is. I love cranberry juice. See, I stuck it in a uh, lemonade bottle that comes from uh, Whole Foods, actually. Mm. Oh, God. Yeah, don't don't use Trader Joe's cranberry juice unless you don't like yourself. But this stuff, sweet corn, surprisingly not bad. Really? That yeah. is a shock. Uh, those of you on Facebook, Jimmy G says that is a shock. All right, so I'm uh, going to resume yes. episode number 80. Bye. Bye. What should we do now? Should we do feedback? Should we do addenda errata? Should we well, just I'm, end the episode? I'm looking at the uh, the feedback and um, talk uh, in this email. Uh, the writer actually talks about a couple of the games we're going to talk about tonight. So I don't know if you want to do that now or wait till you the know, end. You're talking about Trek MD, right? Yeah. What I was thinking we should do is go ahead and read and address his email, but not. The two games we're talking about tonight until we actually talk about those two games. That sounds like a plan to me. Good. Now um, let's execute that plan. But uh, you want to talk about some news, too? Though There's been a little bit going on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the, uh, the big news is that Nintendo's fired lawsuit against a couple of uh, ROM distribution websites, and because of that, the best ROM download site on the internet, uh, which since you can't download ROMs from them anymore, I guess I can just say here, Emu Paradise, pulled all of its ROMs. So uh, it's gotten a lot harder to emulate games, which um, I think the current episode of the Completely Unnecessary Podcast had a pretty good uh, discussion about that and about how uh, and about uh, protecting of video games for future players and how Nintendo has this incredible back catalog, but they only, you know, they don't release things like the way that they probably should be doing and, and stuff like that. So you might yeah. want to check that out for a thorough, in-depth discussion. But, uh, yeah, so it's going to get harder to find uh, games online, which is interesting because I downloaded a ROM uh, the day before Game Paradise pulled all the ROMs down, which was interesting timing. But um, Mind you, we do not advocate not downloading oh, ROMs no, no, unless no. you actually own the machine. <clears throat> And the thing is, we would never do that ourselves. Paradise had everything that was Nintendo branded off of the website, and they've had it like that for quite some time, too. Really? Yeah, so uh, they weren't implicated in any lawsuit or anything, but they figured, you know, probably better just uh, cut their losses and, well, maybe not cut their losses, but uh, get out of it before they get targeted or something like that. So, Well, yeah, and Atari's targeting people, too, or or whatever they're called now, not Atari, whoever Um, owns the name. They've. What was it they were doing? They uh, somebody from Atari, uh, Atari SA, which SA means something awful, put out a their own copy of uh, Atari Age magazine done up in the way that the Atari Age magazine from the eighties was done up, and um, it's you know about the VCS and and that. First of all, they've been caught. They've been caught actually stealing images from other websites uh, to put in this magazine. I don't remember if this is actually official or not. It might not be official, but uh, I'm all I'm concer- currently uh, worried that uh, Atari might pull some uh, baloney against uh, the great website Atari Age, which is something that would, uh, if something happens to them, that would hurt the retro gaming community more than I think uh, pulling down ROM sites. Yep. So um, 
Yeah, so that's something to watch out for. Uh, a t- the Not current- snakes? Watch out for snakes. Wow, we haven't done that one in a while. But uh, so it seems to me that whoever is in Atari SM, whatever, they're going after everything with the word Atari in it. Oh God, that's what it is. I had I had a a thing, uh, a a row with one of their uh, social media people. Oh, by the way, until today they hadn't talked, but released any more information about the uh, the VCS or whatever the hell they're calling that thing. But I had my own little uh, row with them and. I told them, you do know that you are, uh, uh, by your actions, you are pissing off a lot of, uh, of Atari fans. And um, they didn't reply to that, but they replied to a lot of the other things that I was saying, too. And it's uh, really a sad state of affairs. Um, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. The Atari Age website and everything Albert over there is doing, to me, that's Atari. The company that calls itself Atari is not the real Atari. Atari Age no. is the real Atari because it's keeping the spirit of Atari alive. They're not prostituting the IPs and going after people using the name or whatever. You got uh, somewhat caught up in that with the 7800 Homebrew podcast. Uh, maybe not directly, but indirectly, I believe. And uh, Yeah, the, the, the uh, stickers I had mm-hmm. for sale, they were like, uh, oh, who was it? It wasn't Red Bubble. It was... Um, I thought it was Red Bubble. Actually, I think it was Zazzle. Like, they put the kibosh on them, citing, like, their claims from a trademark owner or something. And I'm thinking, is it because there are little pictures of game boxes and stuff, and those are trademarks? But no, it might be because it had the word Atari in it. Mm-hmm. And Coleco Holdings, was re- in the last year or so, were doing the same bullshit. Pardon my French. You know, about uh, getting stuff pulled that may have had the word Coleco or ColecoVision on it. How the hell are you supposed to know what console a game is for unless it says something like for the ColecoVision? In yep. fact, there was a recent dust-up with, um, I think it was the ColecoVision. ColecoVision and Opcode Games are both coming out with their own uh, ColecoVision-compatible console, which I think is great because I really want a, uh, a reliable, you know, low-profile HDMI HDMI, HDMI compatible ColecoVision console, and uh, I think it was ColecoVision was exploring licensing the uh, Coleco name from uh, Coleco Holdings, but after an outcry on Atari Age, uh, they decided against that. In fact, I think they decided against that. It was either today or yesterday. Oh wow! So, uh, so they're going to call it. Oh god, I can't remember what they're going to call it now. Okay, it must be the other ones who are doing Project Prometheus. One of them's doing Prometheus. I think the other one that's codenamed Omni. No, it's not codenamed that. Um, Of course, i got to pull it up now. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, oh, you mean the website. The website, yes. Uh, It was the Collector... Yeah, it was Collector Vision. Oh, they're they're going to call it the Collector Vision Phoenix as the name for their system. I believe Opcode Games has the new uh, Super Game module built into into the hardware. Uh, I don't okay, believe- that's the Project Prometheus. Yes. Although one of them, I think, changed the name to Project Omni from what I've been seeing on uh, Facebook. I, I don't know what's going on with that. But at any rate, so they're going to be, within the next six, seven months, there's going to be two different uh, classic-type ColecoVision retro consoles on the market. Well, ColecoVision com- compatible. And uh, so that's something to look out for. Um, they're looks like they're going to both retail in the neighborhood of two hundred bucks once once it's all said and done. Uh, so there we go. Man, it's kind of costly, but man. But you know what? As somebody it's pointed tempting. out, and I think it's a good observation. 
is that if you look at the amount of money it would take to upgrade your current ColecoVision and fix yeah. any problems with it, uh, upgrade it so it can uh, you know do HDMI or whatever, probably going to end up costing you around two hundred bucks anyway. That's true. That's true. So you know, do what you will with that information. And I think hmm. that's pretty much all of the news, uh, other than the fact that I'm in the next week or so going to be a guest on the 20th Century Geek podcast. It's a uh, pop culture podcast uh, based out of the UK. We are going to be talking uh, for, I talked to uh, to Scott, uh, Scott Weatherly of that uh, podcast uh, for about an hour, hour 15 minutes about Monty Python. And, uh, so, you like uh, Monty Python? I love Monty Python. I am the one of the moderators of the of a Monty Python. Oh gosh, the Monty Python Appreciation Society page on Facebook. So uh, yeah, I like Monty Python. I'm not as active as the other admins, but I am on that page. So uh, so listen for that, and uh, once that gets released, we'll post a link on our Facebook page and what have you. Sure. And um, oh, by the way, uh, you did a good job. Speaking of podcasts, on the most recent 7800 uh, homebrew podcast. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was a great homebrew I went over. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it was your burnout episode. You were talking about your love for the Beach Boys. and Take good care of your feet. I don't hate the Beach Boys, but I'm not a fanatic. If I won't change the radio station, but I don't search them out. I mean, I enjoy the music right. and all that. But uh, I have to say, for somebody who's not as fanatical about them. I have to say that uh, the episode was uh, very, very entertaining. You did a great job on that. Well, thank you, uh, Jimmy G, and so did you. Oh, well, seeing as I did nothing, uh, you're welcome. And um, so, yeah, so uh, if you haven't checked that out, uh, go listen to that. As soon as you're done listening to this one. Or listen to this podcast and that one at the same time, you know. That's it. So, uh, shall we read uh, most of the uh, email that we uh, received? Yeah, and you know what? Um, or do we have any agenda and errata before we read this? Well, we have. Well, also, we have other stuff to read. Uh, yeah. We we got something we don't really get very much. Uh, we got a text message. Really? Yes, we got a text message from yeah over our phones from the Orcade.com Millipede World Record Holder, and that would uh, be one Duk Dang. Oh uh, yes, Duk yes, Dang. Yes, yes, yes. Who says, uh, hey gamers, fun episode number 79. Well, thank you, Duke Dang. Danke. I like how you discussed the original Tron film. I enjoyed that one. And the music and special effects still work for me, smiley face. A few things about Millipede. Number one, each time a wait. Oh, you know what? This is a Denda Narada. Okay. So should we just open up a Denda Narada? Maybe we'll just open up a Denda Narada. All right, bring in Scattered Frog. <laughs> Okay, so uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. Uh, a few things about Millipede. Number one, each time a wave is cleared, and keep in mind this may only happen when all the bugs' heads are destroyed without dying, the play field moves down one row. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. Every time you destroy the centipede and you go on to the next wave, all the mushrooms and everything, they move down one row, and you might see a new row of mushrooms that might have a DDT canister or two. Uh, let's see. Uh, number two, bearing in mind point number one, as the board descends and you position your archer directly beneath a flower, watch out for other bugs in play that may kill you. Watch out for what? Watch out for snakes. Oh, other bugs. Oh, okay. You may get rid of that flower. I did not know that. Huh. Position your character beneath, beneath your flower. Hmm. 
Off the track. I thought. I thought the only way to get rid of a flower was a spider hovering over it. But oh well. Let's see number three. Following the third swarm wave with the mosquitoes, the diagonal moving bug, the board keeps descending like every second until one of the three things until one of three things happens. A, the archer is killed, B, all millipede heads are destroyed, or C, a DDT bomb is shot. Lastly, I'm most certain that bombing bugs with the DDT triples the value of the destroyed bugs because the max value for a spider is 1,800 points. That is, a 600-point spider killed with a DDT. And yes, both mushrooms and flowers may disappear off-screen. You were wondering about that, Jimmy G. Whether at the top or bottom. So, yeah, there we go. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, and something else that I... Have to mention before I forget. Uh, well, I'll get to that later. But uh, do you have anything to uh, say in response to uh, Duke Dang? Uh, not to Duke Dang, but uh, we do have uh, an errata from uh, the guys over at Into the Vertical Blank podcast. Uh, oh, really? If you're not listening to that, listen to that. This was on Twitter. Normally, we don't read Link tweets the show because, quite frankly, I don't like the interface and I have a hard time deciphering what is for us and what things we were just mentioned in. But uh, here's one that they did say, great pod today on Liberator and Millipede. There Thanks, was guys. actually a Millipede silver label Atari 800XL cart released, not just a prototype. It's very fun, but compared to the NES version, you are right, it does look choppy on YouTube. Plays very well, though, on an 8-bit. Well, it's still very choppy, but I have warmed up to it a little bit since then. But uh, it's, it's still pretty dang choppy, but uh, there you go. And oh... And I might as well go back uh, a month before that because uh, they um, also said about our bicycle episode, uh, I have a Trek hybrid and I love it too. I've been stopped short with my slip-in pedals and clip-in pedals and fallen over numerous times before. I couldn't get my feet out, so I don't use them anymore or a douche bar ever. I think he means there, so I don't <laughs> use them anymore. I wonder if he was doing, uh, you know, text speech to text sort of thing. So there's that. But um, oh, Speaking gonna, of which... I remember Keith had gonna, mentioned oh, yeah. uh, not being able to unclip himself from the pit. What's the what is it with these clips that people talk about? What is that? Okay, what's that about? Here's the thing: the, the clip pedals are actually the ones that are like a toe basket, and you gotta lean over and unclip and physically with your hand to loosen it up to get your feet out so that you can stop and stuff. I I've used those for a short time and I totally hated them. Yeah, I, mean, I can't I get the hang of doing it, but uh, in an emergency, that's just not, you know, not a good thing. But I currently use cl- what they call clipless pedals, which ironically have something on them called the SPD clip. Go figs. Which basically your foot clips directly to the pedal, thanks to your, uh, thanks to a, a a hook on your shoe, and to get out of it, you just twist your foot just a little bit, and uh, you're free. Yeah, I'm just gonna use my standard pedals. Thank you very much. Well, for the kind of writing you do, that's probably fine. But with the hills and stuff we have out here, when I'm going down a hill, I like to have my feet clipped in on the clipless pedals, mainly because um, sometimes you can get out of control a little bit and your foot slips off the pedal when you've got speed going. And um, I just like the uh, sense of control that you have. Whether it actually helps me with power and riding or whatever, I don't know. But I do feel like I have more control over my bicycle when I'm clipped in. Hmm. That's pretty much it with me. I guess I'm going to read one more tweet here, even though this isn't an addenda or errata. We just really don't, like I said, usually read tweets. But uh, uh, this is from Tim M., the great 
Siamon81. I just, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. At Pie Factory PFP, PFP, I just listened to your first two episodes and loving the show. I've been catching up on 2600 Game by Game and heard about the show. I was just checking out DKVCS on my Harmony cart. Such an amazing hack showcasing what the 2600 can do. Thank you, guys. Well, thank you, Tim. Um, Thanks, Tim. Yeah, it's actually not a hack. It's uh, it's a complete from the ground up homebrew, and yeah. it's pretty amazing. I don't think they've actually done any more work on it. I think it's actually finally finished, and they are talking about. Uh, if I'm reading the thread correctly, uh, they are talking about actually putting it on a uh, on a cartridge. Oh, that's and awesome! Offering it up for sale. So uh, when that happens, that is one that I will definitely buy. Yeah, me too. I can't run it on my Harmony cart because I, I have one of the very first Harmony carts. Mm-hmm. And even with the latest firmware, it won't run that particular game. I have to upgrade to the newer Harmony, which mm-hmm. I might do. I don't know. We'll see. There and, you go. and also, I kind of feel weird. Should I? Part of me says, yeah, you should get it to support the homebrew community. But another part of me says, well, you have Donkey Kong PK on the 7800. Yeah, true. But, but I mean, each home version of each arcade port does have its own little. That is true, and I did you know, say that thing. as soon as Pac Man Eight K comes out, I'm all I'm going to be all over that bitch. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, that's a great version of Pac Man. Even though I have the pokey version of Bob DiCrescenzo's uh, Pac Man collection, mm-hmm. but hey, uh, oh you know what? Um, I I have uh, some aden- some addenda errata. I guess mostly errata. Well, one addendum, one erratum. Uh, the addendum, I totally forgot to mention this, which is weird because it really stuck out to me when I was researching Millipede. But what I found very fascinating was that Millipede is unusual in that there were only two different styles of Millipede machine released instead of the usual three. Usually you have the full size, the cabaret, and the cocktail. Millipede was only out in full size and cocktail. Huh. Didn't have a cabaret. So I found that interesting. Uh, the other thing, uh, when I said that, uh, according to my research, the DDT, if you uh, shoot the DDT, you get 800 points, but I swore it was 600. No, the research was correct. You do get 800 points. So for about 30-some years, I was calculating incorrectly, I guess. Well, apparently so. Oh, well. And I think that we should probably... Are we done? We closing the door on this puppy? Well, don't close it. Let the puppy escape first. Hey, it's Mixed Metaphors Night on Pie Factory Podcast. Yeah. So, so what, what, what about uh, the um, other stuff? What about uh, Trek MD? Well, that's not an addenda or errata. I don't. I guess you. It's got maybe well, elements. It doesn't, it's not an addenda or errata, but we should still address it. Yeah, we should. So uh, why don't uh, I take like the first five, and then you can take the second five. Oh, okay. Because uh, blessed two points he has on here address um, two of the games we're going to talk about tonight. So. Yeah, we'll talk about those later on. As soon as we're done with this, probably. So, this is from uh, Trek MD Eugenio. Hello, Sean and Jim. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I've continued listening to the podcast. God bless you. Sorry so to hear I that. So, I put together some additional feedback for you. Sorry, but this one is also long. <laughs> That's what she said. No! <laughs> one, Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator. 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 Simulants. Simulants. I'm a big fan of Star Trek, so when I first saw this game, I I was quite excited. I got to play this at the arcade in the local mall back then, and I went back to it often. Loved the speech on the game, how it looked, and how it played. Making video games based on Star Trek can be more difficult because of how Star Trek tells its stories and the lack of dogfights with fighters as seen in franchises like Star Wars. 
Space battles in Star Trek are more like submarine battles, and this is not something that lends itself very well for adaptation into a video game. You know what? I never thought about that, but he's he is actually right. Uh, if you go back to old episodes of uh, Star Trek or Star Trek Next Gen, uh, anytime there is uh, you know starships battling each other, it is more like uh, it's more tactical versus Star Wars, where it's more uh, action oriented or orientated, which I found out actually is a word, even though I really hate it. yes. <clears throat> so we got to get M Biggins into the dictionary. You got to get what M Biggins? Biggins? Yeah, Simpsons. Jebediah Springfield is part of... Oh, M. Biggins. I thought you meant Biggins, as in married with children. Oh, no, no, no. But anyway, any rate... I mean, it's a perfectly <clears throat> cromulent word. Oh, yeah. And I love cromulant. <clears throat> so anyway, anyway, back to you. Hugh 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 Sorry, email. guys. Um, it's good to see this game captured that kind of space battle and effectively, effectively made it an enjoyable experience. The split screen was pretty unique at the time, and I don't recall seeing another vector game that did this back then. Having a viewer angle, a top view from space, and the tactical display on screen is a really neat way for the game to engage the player. I, of course, got the Atari 2600 version as soon as Sega released it, and I thoroughly enjoyed playing it at home. That was a pretty good uh, version. Um, Years later, I got the 5200 version, and to be honest, I got to like that version even more. Uh, The 2600 version is really cool, but the 5200 ups the game a notch. So, I'd have to say that this game was a... That's probably a Klingon word. Quapla? Q-A-P-L-A apostrophe for Sega. I think that's Klingon. Or so. it could, or it's, uh, according to Google Translate, it's Azerbaijani for the door. So this game was uh, the door for Sega. Okay, yeah. there we go. So, number two, Galaxian. Ah, uh, yes, Galaxian. <laughs> well played, Eugenio, well played. Um, I played this at the Mall's Arcade back home as soon as I saw it. I'll admit that I hated this game back then. It drove me crazy how unfair the game was, but being a glutton for punishment, I kept trying and trying and trying. To no avail, I'm afraid. I just could not do well. You'd figure that when the game was ported to the 2600, I'd avoid it at all costs. Well, I did at the beginning, but one of my cousins bought it and I gave that version a try. I kept wondering why there was a yellow border around the screen, but found myself enjoying this version much more than the arcade. Uh, side note, uh, somebody at Atari Age removed that border on the 2600 version. You can uh, you can get a hack called the Galaxian Arcade from hmm. the Atari Age store. Is it more um, than just the removal of the border? I, I uh, there's a few other uh, okay. a- enhancements to it, but uh, they did remove that border, which... Yeah, pretty much everybody loved the 2600 version of Galaxian, with the exception of that border. Uh, there are more changes to it. I can't tell you what off the top of my head, but there you go. But anyway, <clears throat> so I purchased it as soon as I could, and I still own my original cartridge. I also have the 5200 version, which, despite looking nicer, is a rather weak port. I hardly play either version nowadays, though, since I prefer Galaga, which I pronounce Galaga. Ha! <laughs> I'm vindicated. That's not what he says. He's, he says, which I pronounce Galaga. Emphasis Gal- on the Galaga. first Galaga. Galaga. On my 7800. Despite all its firsts, Galaxian just falls short when compared to its sequel. Yeah, I'm going to take is- a screen cap of that just so people know that I'm not lying. Yeah, well, you know. Uh, Lock and Chase. I always found Lock and Chase to be very amusing because the premise has you playing the bad guy and avoiding law enforcement. Never mind that because this Pac-Man clone is one cool game. I love playing this in the arcade and every time I see the machine at retro events, I go for it. Now, actually, that's a crazy claimer. Um, I see what you did there. <laughs> though this is intended, indeed, a clone of Pac-Man, the game is different enough to be very entertaining, and, have, and having to escape once you get all the gold is an added feature that adds just a little bit of difficulty to the game. I really liked seeing the old car bring the thief to the door of the maze, something that was missing from many of the home ports. I wanted to play the game at home, so I got the 2600 version when it was released. The game looked pretty good, and it was actually impressive. 
There was no flicker. The gold bars were in, in gold color and not in the same color as the maze, and the main character did maintain the overall shape of the arcade. It wasn't until years later, when I finally got an Intellivision, that I got that the port for that system, and I was really impressed. It has to be among the best arcade ports for the system. It looks great, sounds great, and plays great. Whether on the arcade, the 2600, or the Intellivision, though, Lock and Chase is plenty of fun. Number four, New I, th- I think that's really the only way you're going to be able to play Lock and Chase is at like a retro gaming event. You just can't find those games anywhere. I think Fun Spot's the only one that has it. You know, looking at uh, doing a cursory glance at uh, at arcade and looking at even a lot of the uh, the games that had a lot of distribution back then. Yeah, it is amazing how so few arcade games have actually survived. I mean, it with really a game, is. let's say, like one we're going to talk about tonight, that had a release of only 500 units, huh. you'd think that there would be a heck of a lot more of them out there. But in reality, just, I mean, unfortunately, no. I mean, there's not a lot of games out there, even, as I was saying, amongst the ones that had thousands and thousands released. So it's kind of sad, really, but yeah. you know, what you're going to do, that's the way things are, I guess. But So anyway, Moon Patrol, number four. I never did play Moon Patrol much in the arcade. I did see the game and tried it a few times, but I just didn't spend much time with it because I was not very good at it. Despite that, I did get the 2600 version and did the complete opposite. I really enjoyed playing it at home, maybe because I was actually able to play it and I did not have to spend quarter after quarter trying to master it. I now have various versions and clones of this game to enjoy, including versions for the 5200 and television and Vectrex. The 5200 has, of course, an actual port from back in the day, which is rather nicely done. It looks and sounds great, and is a tough nut to crack. <laughs> I have Space Patrol, which is a clone for the Intellivision, which expands on the original gameplay by letting the player select other moon's planets to play on. Oh, that's kind of neat. Uh, the gameplay is overall the same, but it's nifty to have different challenges depending on which planet you're on. This game also looks and sounds superbly. I also recently got Vector Patrol for the Vectrex, which is yet another clone of Moon Patrol. This is another fantastic version of the game that I highly recommend. In fact, if you haven't tried either the NT or the Vectrex clones, I suggest you give them a try. You got Vector Patrol, right? Or No, I got Vector oh, Pilot. Oh, you got Vector Pilot. That's I'm going right. to get Vector That's Patrol. Right. The thing is, Moon Patrol isn't one of my favorite games. It's a nice game. It's just not one of my personal favorites, so I'm not really in a yeah, rush. Well, I like I like. I love the music. I love that, that bluesy little soundtrack to it. I love that so much, but the, the game itself, it's like, yeah, whatevs. You know. Whatevs. 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 So. Number five, Qbert. Okay, before I even talk about this game, I have to thank Sean for teaching me a new word. Pull offable. You're welcome. Quite the neologism. 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 Okay. If you don't remember, Sean used the term when referring to some move that lets you play unobstructed by enemies in the arcade. I remember the word, I just don't remember the context I used it in. So, okay. Anyhow, Qbert is definitely a asterisk, dollar sign, at sign, percent sign, at sign. I think those are the actual uh, Qbert symbols. At sign classic. I played tons of this game in the arcade at the mall and at the arcade at the university. Did not mind pouring my quarters into this machine. I, of course, got the 2600 version as soon as it was released. I did not care that it looked how it looked. Me too. The gameplay was there, and that's all I cared about. The truth is that Parker Brothers was able to pull off a remarkable port for the system. Later on, I got the Intellivision and 5200 versions, which looked pretty good as well, but the 5200 is a PETA. Uh, he must have had some euros, too, to play hmm. with uh, ha- having to press the fire button to jump. Now that I have the XEGS, maybe I should get the 8-bit version. You guys were wondering if there was a version of the game for the Vectrex, and the answer to that is yes. Vectrex never got Qbert itself, but has a clone called Spike Hoppin. In this clone, you have to change the brightness of the triangles since the Vectrex is monochromatic, but the overall gameplay is closely ma- matches Qbert. 
As the title suggests, though, the main character of the game is Spike, and the enemies are from other Spike titles. The other version that I have is Bonk Q, or is it just Bonk? I always thought it was Bonk Q, well, but Bonk or Bonk Q. The late Ken Sider has actually said it's Bonk. But um, Eugenio does say, which I've always pronounced Bonk Q, which I do too, but I mean, I think Bonk Q is cute and Bonk works too, so, you know, hey, go for it. Uh, for the 7800. This is truly an excellent part in me and my go-to version nowadays. Yeah, I, I, actually, say- I eventually did learn about um, spike hopping, and uh, there's actually another Qbert clone coming out for Vectrex, and I think I mentioned it before, or actually it might already be out. I forgot what it's called, but I'm pretty sure it's by the same guy who did Vector Patrol and Vector Pilot. Um, I forgot what it's called, but there's another one that's a little bit closer to Qbert than spike hopping is. There you go. So, at this point, uh, we're at number six centipedes. So, uh, do you want to take over for a few minutes, Sean? Sure, sure. Let me let's, let's address Eugenio's next few here. Uh, centipede. This was one title that was really fascinating to see at the arcade because of the trackball control. Never mind that the game itself is really cool, fast-paced, and tons of fun. Centipede was really a unique game when it was released, taking the formula of bottom shooters to a different level. Instead of being stuck just at the bottom of the screen, you can move within a given area up, down, and sideways, which means you have to look at what is under you as well. Uh, dude, especially in Millipede. Uh, anyway, uh, back to you, Henio. Of course, when the 2600 was released, it was an immediate purchase along with a trackball controller. I was disappointed to see the game wasn't truly played in trackball mode, but I still liked using the controller for this game. Once I bought a 5200 years later, my home experience with Centipede moved to a totally different level. Wow, what an amazing port, and using the 5200's trackball controller makes the experience truly arcade-like. I also have the 7800 version, which is no slouch either, but the 5200 version is really the winner for me. Maybe I need to get the hacked 7800 version that works in true trackball mode. Another version I have is the prototype for the Lynx. That one is really incomplete, but it had potential. It is unfortunate that it was not completed. Oh, hold a sec. Hay un quien pies en la casa. Uh, I believe that's Spanish, by the way, for there is a centipede in the house. But, uh, Llamas live in big rivers like the Amazon. Carl. Oh, <laughs> uh, I just saw a thread on this on Atari Age. And somebody, he wired up a Y adapter that took the output from one controller and put it into both uh, ports of the 7800. And he was doing dual shooters with one joystick on a competition or on oh, a cooperation wow. mode, sort of sort of doing the uh, the Galaga double ship thing on Centipede, and I'm like, oh, I gotta wire one of those things up and try that for myself. That looks awesome. <laughs> that's um, that's probably, fascinating. And uh, I, I got to try that because that does sound awesome. Right, and the thing so. about true trackball mode is, I don't even think the arcade version does that because there's no real acceleration in it. I notice it's it's hard to explain, but no matter how fast you move the trackball, it's only, your shooter is only moving at a maximum speed that's not really that fast. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just my own fussiness. I, I don't know. It probably is. But, uh, anyway, uh, moving on. Black Widow. I was unfamiliar with Black Widow until last year when I saw it at Free Play Florida. Like Centipede on a web, but with bugs coming from all directions. Not an easy game, but I had fun learning to play it. Thankfully, no quarters were lost when I was trying it out. I didn't know about this being a conversion kit for Gravatar either until recently. 
In any case, I'm not aware of any home adaptations for this game, and it seems you guys didn't find any either. No, we didn't. Uh, that is a missed opportunity because it certainly could have been adapted with dual joysticks for the 5200 and 7800. Maybe a homebrew programmer will give this game a chance so we can enjoy it at home. It would also be great to see on the Vectrex. I would love to see a homebrew version of Black Widow. That's such a great game. Or you can get Atari's Greatest Hits, and it's it's on there, I believe. Yeah, but that's not the same as a it's classic console. It's not the console. same. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, because if I want to play the arcade game, I'll I'll emulate it because, of course, I own a Black Widow arcade machine. Well, of course. Or you could just go to Galloping Ghost and play it if you want to get away from the house oh, that's play someone too. else's game. Yeah. But, hey. Uh, number eight, Gauntlet. Saw this one at the arcade when I was in college, and it ate plenty of my quarters. It was a blast playing this, and it was great that other players could just join in when they wanted. Many times there would be one person playing, and then several of us joined in. Who can forget the speech in this game? Wizard shot the food. Badly. Elf needs food badly. Speaking of wizard and elf, choosing characters based on their abilities, I was doing finger quotes because uh, TrekMD put quotes in there, was something cool that I don't remember having to do in, in another arcade game at the time. My most favorite character to play was always the wizard. The wizard? The wizard. With the Valkyrie being second. Anyway, when it comes to home versions, I was very disappointed with the NES version because of all the changes made to the game. I do have the Midway Arcade treasures for PS2 and PSP, which include the original game and both play well. I also have the 5200 port, but that one suffers from... Sl I didn't know that was on the 5200. Uh, I did not either, huh. unless it's a homebrew. Yeah, it might Gauntlet be on the 5200. Wow, that's that's something. I know I mentioned this before, but I'm f I'm mostly familiar with the uh, Commodore 64 version. That's how I first played it, and because that game spoiled me on the Commodore 64, because I can I really can't imagine it as an arcade game, even though I've played it in an arcade. Okay, I just uh, I just did a quick Google search for um, Gauntlet 5200, and there's a video of a 5200 version of Gauntlet. Huh. Uh, when was this posted? February 8th, 2014. It must be a homebrew because it's not... It's gotta... Yeah, it's gotta be. Yeah, it's not listed on Atari Age in the Rarity Guide. Yeah, it's gotta be. Or a um, recently discovered prototype, theoretically. Fact, but I doubt that would be the case. Probably too late for the 5200. It's a... Oh, it's a mean hamster game. The author has chosen not to distribute the ROM. There is a demo that you can download. So it must have been for sale at some point. If Eugenio has it. Hmm. Huh. I'm going to have to download this. I'm bookmarking this right now so that I can come back to this page later and download it. Yeah, we should uh, link it in the show notes, too. Uh, yes, we should. Yeah. Number nine, pole position. I first saw a pole position at a small supermarket one of my uncles had in my hometown. The first person to play the game was my dad. My dad rarely played video games, but he got hooked on this one. It helped that we didn't have to pay to play. I, of course, played the game tons and had lots of fun. It was always a challenge, but I kept trying and trying and trying. I have to say that listening to the qualifying voice at the start was so cool back then. Once the game came to the 2600, I immediately got it. While I did have fun with it, despite the limitations of the 2600, my dad didn't really enjoy it. He didn't like driving, finger quotes again, with a joystick. He really wanted a steering wheel. I now have versions of Pole Position for the 5200 and the Vectrex, which is remarkably well done. Yeah, the Vectrex Pole Position is really surprisingly super good. 
uh, and Pole Position 2 for the 7800, all of which I really enjoy. I really need to give Pole Position 2 on the 7800 another chance. Uh, anyway, going on. Uh, I do have to wonder why Atari didn't create a true driving controller for their consoles, though. That would have made this game even more awesome to play at home. Hmm. And I guess he's not counting the uh, Atari driving controller as a true driving controller, which I can see because it's just a paddle controller, really, that just Bam. does a whole 360. There's, no, there's, 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 it's a lot. It looks like it, but it's, it's, the internals are way different. Yeah. But like, it's not like a I said, steering Becky, wheel. Like I said in the pole position episode, uh, when I found that through my uh, vision adapter, uh, that I can use the the um, ColecoVision Super Action controllers with the little spinner and use the little spinner thing to steer. That made the game really fun. Oh, I was going to mention uh, the people that make... Uh, I was going to do this during, during our news bit. Uh, I hadn't been uh, keeping up with the Vision Adapter people for a while, but uh, they got a new product out called the D9, which basically, if it has a, uh, a DB9 port adapter, you know, on the end of the controller, this thing will basically run it. Really? From an Intellivision controller to 2600 paddle oh. to ColecoVision to Genesis to pretty much everything for about 35 50 bucks. Well, then again, I have something similar myself that I, I I don't remember what it is off the top of my head, but I do have something similar. It's a DB9 to USB and it works well in MAME, but I, I did a search online for it and I was like, wait, 35 bucks? I didn't remember paying that much for that. Certainly wouldn't have paid that much for it, but I don't know. Anything further to say about uh, Trek and D's comments about pole position? Nope. Then I'm going to move on to number 10, Millipede. And uh, Trek ND says, As much as I like to play Centipede, the sequel just takes it all. I did not know this was going to be originally called Centipede Deluxe until I listened to your podcast, though. Uh, by the way, just a disclaimer, um, truth be told, we don't know either. We didn't get definitive word. It's just pretty much hearsay, really. But um, do, with, do with that what you will. Going on, uh, Trek D says, I suppose that was a good decision given the story of lackluster success by the deluxe titles of the time. So why do I like this game so much? The simple answer is that it enhances the gameplay of Centipede by adding new elements, new bugs, and new challenges while still keeping the original formula. If I see both Centipede and Millipede at any retro event, I tend to go to Millipede first. As you might expect, I got the 2600 version of the game as soon as it was re released, and I still have it today. Atari did an excellent job adapting Millipede to the system, and I do play this one quite often. The 5200 had a prototype that was not released, but I was able to find one binary. Unfortunately, that version was incomplete and worked rather slow. Thankfully, I later found a more complete binary that is far better and plays at normal speed. I now also own a reproduction cart for Millipede to play in my 5200 that must have the same binary. The one system I wish got the game is the 7800. Oh, yeah. I'm sure Centipede could be hacked to get this title for the console. Anyone up to the challenge? Uh, Trek MD, Eugenio Bud, there actually was someone who started working on a 7800 millipede hacking Centipede, actually. You can get the ROM. I can put a link to that in the show. Good. We're going to have nothing but links in the show notes for this whole... Everything we say is going to be well, a Well, we're not technically going to have links because that's uh, Mark Little's podcast. The, you know, the, the Lynx Handicast. Okay, I'm done. <sighs> but yeah, someone did start hacking the 7800 Centipede to Millipede. Uh, not a heck of a lot was really done. I think it's just, a gr at this point, the graphics were just altered. At this, I don't think there's... Uh, I don't think it has the DDT tanks or the extra enemies yet, but the mushrooms are redesigned, the, the player sprites redesigned, 
but that's just about it. Um, uh, James G, do you have anything to add to Trek MD's discussion of Millipede? I do not. Okay. In that case, uh, the next two games that uh, Trek MD talks about here are the ones we're going to talk about in this episode. So we will get back to uh, Eugenio once we're done talking about those games. So there. There you have it. A letter opener. So you want to do these in or- these next two games in the order in which uh, Eugenio has them in the email? Yeah, might as well, especially because that's the order that I have the notes in my uh, uh, notes. There you go. So, so why hey, do we do that then? Yeah, so let's let's actually get into the uh, main topic of uh, this episode's um, topic. Episode. Yeah. Uh, this episode's topic so, episode. So, uh, first game we should discuss, I believe, then, would be Kicks. Kicks. Huzzah, Kicks. Huzzah, Kicks. And that game was released in October 1981 when I turned seven years old. Released by Taito America Corporation. Yes, it's a title game made in America. And in fact... It is the first title game to originate at Title America. Oh, by the way, fun fact for, for you, Jimmy G, and our friends listening. The hmm. Taito America Corporation was located at 1256 Estes in Elk Grove Village here in Illinois. I have a picture of the intersection of Estes and Glenwood, just about a mile up from where I live, mile and a half that uh-huh. everybody needs to see because it's awesome. It's the same oh, Estes. No. It's just Estes is a really long street. It goes all the way through to the uh, to the lake, pretty much. But uh, anyway, what is currently at 1256 Estes? Well, it's uh, the Chicago Region Council of Carpenters Union Apprentice and Training Program. So there you go. If you go to Title America, you're gonna be tra- you're gonna train to be a carpenter's apprentice. So mm-hmm. there you go. Well, I guess given. The theme of this game, you know, with, like, uh, geometry and all that. Uh, you know, this game could help you in that I suppose career. it could, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so listen on, sailors. Um, the Kicks game was conceived by Sandy Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer? Pfeiffer. And uh, the game was designed and programmed by Randy Pfeiffer. Uh, whether, I don't remember if uh, the two are spouses or brother and sister or what. Or brother and brother, for all because there are some guys named Sandy, short for Alexander, but I don't know. By the way, everybody, Q-I-X, it is pronounced kicks. I hear people pronounce it quicks. No, it is kicks. The only reason it would ever be pronounced quicks is if there were a U after the Q or a W after the Q. And in most languages, even with the U in there, it's still pronounced like a K, so it's kicks, 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 kicks. And if you uh, want further support for that... Well, number one, uh, Jimmy G, do you know where the name of the game Kicks comes from, where it originates? From a breakfast cereal that's round like tricks, but all yellow instead? Yes. Well, actually, no, that's a lie. That's a lie. No, it's from Randy Pfeiffer's vanity plate, his license plate. Okay. Which read J-U-S and then the number four and then Q-I-X, just for kicks. They did it for the kicks. They did it for the kicks. But anyway, uh, number two, the number two, and this is this clinches it right here the arcade flyer that advertises the game actually tells you that it's pronounced kicks it actually spells it out k-i-c-k-s so yeah and i'll put a link to that in the show another link good night the website's gonna be bogged down with all these links just in this one episode so anyway so for those of you unfamiliar with kicks which i suspect is very few of you if any of you 
what is a kicks? A kicks is a arc of electricity, and it moves around an empty play field. And you control a marker that has to mark off spaces around said kicks until the marker claims at least 75% of the playfield. You're basically drawing sections off and enclosing the kicks as much as you can. And your marker can only move in four directions, up, down, left, and right. And ergo, you can only draw right angles or straight lines. When your marker draws a line or a series of lines that connects either to an outer wall or to another area that you've already marked off, the result is called a Styx, S-T-I-X, and the Styx is the perimeter of the area that you just claimed. Styx. And when you draw a Styx, a fuse is lit after about a second if you don't move your marker right away, and that fuse is going to follow you, and if the fuse reaches your marker, you lose a life. But if you manage to complete a Styx, then the area you just claimed is going to be filled in with either turquoise or orange, depending on whether you drew a fast Styx or a slow Styx, respectively. And what is a fast Styx versus a slow Styx? Well, it's exactly what you hear. The control panel, there are two buttons, one for fast, one for slow. The slow Styx moves your marker much slower than the fast Styx button does, but if you use the slow sticks, you earn more points for the region that you just claimed than you would if you'd used a fast sticks. So, uh, oh, by the way, if the kicks makes contact with your marker, or if it makes contact with an incomplete sticks that you are in the process of drawing, you lose a life. <gasps> uh, dropping the da 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 thing, Hyde, or the new da 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 that we use now. Yeah, do the new one. Yeah, yeah we don't want to be cliche. Yeah, the anymore. closet killer. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, oh, by the way, um, not only must you avoid the kicks and the fuse that you might accidentally start, but you also have to avoid a couple of things that are called sparks, S-P-A-R-X. And sparks are little spark-looking things that traverse the perimeter of the playfield or the perimeters of the regions that you claimed. And the sparks are wearing spanks. Are oh, they? Wait a minute. I didn't notice you that. Know. I'll have to double yeah. check on that. But uh, there's a red timeline at the top of the screen that deteriorates, 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 that disappears slowly from both ends. And when it fully, and when it's fully gone, it takes uh, 32 seconds by default. There will be an additional sparks that joins the game. So watch out for sparks. Watch out for sparks. And uh, hey, I mentioned those two uh, sticks buttons, so I might as well talk about the control panel. And uh, this is one of the few games from, well, one of the few non-Nintendo Golden Age arcade games that forces you to play left-handed. The, the joystick is on the left, and of course it's a four-way joystick. And there are two buttons on the right. Left is for fast, right is for slow. So there's your control panel. To score points, um, you claim a region, really. And uh, when you claim a region, you get 250 times the number of percentage points that you just claimed, assuming you're using fast sticks. For example, if you claim 4% of the screen, you score 1,000 points. If you use slow sticks, you score 500 times whatever the percentage is. For example, if you acquire 4% with slow sticks, you get 2,000 points. Yay! If you claim more than the 75% minimum, you get a bonus, 1,000 points times the percentage overage. For example, if you covered 80% of the screen, you get 5,000 points extra because you went 5 percentage points above the minimum, so 5 times 1,000, 5,000. 
that's mathematics. And uh, something I didn't mention is that I th- is it level th- the third or fourth level where there are multiple kickses or kisses or whatever. And if you complete a level, but with each kicks surrounded separately, then you get a bonus multiplier that increments by one. And every time you finish a level with separated kickses, that bonus multiplier keeps incrementing, which is uh, very handy, of course. So that's really the game. Uh, Jimmy G, did I forget to mention anything important about the game? Um, I think you did, actually. Oh, do tell. Uh, the trap? The trap? The sp- Viral Death Trap. Oh, is that when, like, you, that you kind of draw yourself into a... When you draw yourself into, like, a, a corner or something. Yeah, yes. yeah. You, you can't move anymore, and so the spark just comes, the fuse comes, comes, comes and gets you. Yeah, that's, you gotta be careful about that there. Yeah. Uh, I've actually had that happen a few times. Yeah. This is a, definitely a game that's, um... Uh, despite the ports that we will be talking about in just a moment, uh, you really need a four-way controller on because eight-way will really screw you up oh, in this yeah, game. Yeah. But yes, uh, yeah, the spiral death trap. So uh, I want, just wanted to say that because I just wanted to hear echoes and stuff in sound effects because spiral death trap. Yeah, that's gonna be the name of the first album by my uh, my new wave band, which I totally forgot the name of now. It's like- Chinese vendor of dubious legality was that? The yeah, name? yeah, mm-hmm. yes. Huh. The spiral death trap. I just wanted to mention that oh. because that's fun. And this game actually has some nice strategies. To it really it. does. Um, and there's one yeah. that you taught me many, many, many years ago, like back in the '90s, that I kind of stick to. In fact, I think everybody does that. Really? Yeah, I, I read it actually in a Ken uh, Ken Ustin book about uh, beating arcade games. And uh, basically, you just draw small, fast blocks up the middle until you get as close to the top as possible, and then just one small, slow stick to get mega points for, uh, you know, half the screen. Now, something I noticed lately when I've been playing the game is that if I do that, like, the kicks never, ever, ever, ever leaves my vicinity. It just hovers there. There is some sort of weird algorithm or whatever that, or AI or what have you, that moves the uh, the kicks in this game. I'm convinced of it. I, I find myself in that situation quite a bit. But yeah. um, you get to the screens where you split the kicks. If you could do that quite a bit, then uh, you can really be getting into the points yeah. there. I used to be able to do that a lot. I can't do that anymore for some reason. I can. I, I can wonder if it's easier to do the uh, because this is uh, in portrait orientation in the arcade. I wonder if it'd be easier to like build across from the left or the right. I've tried that. It was the, of it's just I, I don't. It's basically six of one, six of another, you know? Six of one, half dozen of the other? Yeah, half a dozen of one, half a dozen of the other, you know? Something like that. Uh, oh, you know what? I should I should uh, mention and or talk about the sequels. Uh, there's a pseudo-sequel called Kicks 2 Tournament. I say pseudo-sequel oh. because it's pretty much the same game. The only difference is the colors are different. And uh, if you claim at least 90% of a play field, you get a free game. I was hoping you were going to say Kicks 2 Electric Boogaloo, no, but that's cliche, no, I guess. No, it doesn't exist. So. There's uh, Super Kicks from 1987, and that one also gives you a free game, but you have to claim at least 98% of the play field. And Super Kicks, I believe, introduced the concept of gradually revealing a picture as you claim different parts of the screen, and it also introduced power-ups to the game. And uh, let's see, in 1989... There was a uh, sequel called Volfide, 
And uh, that that was actually also released on the Sega Genesis under the title Ultimate Kicks. Uh, I now the thing is we talked about uh, Miss World '96 Nude or whatever not, Nude '96 mm-hmm. whatever, which is basically a ripoff of Volfide. Now I didn't actually play any Volfide for this episode, so I didn't get a chance to uh, figure it out, and I couldn't tell by any research. But uh, Miss World Nude '96, you could actually draw diagonally on that. I don't know if you can do that on Volfide. I think you can, but I'm not 100% sure. But uh, there's another one from 1995. Another sequel is called Twin Kicks, so-called because two players can play simultaneously. Because uh, in the in the mid-90s, you know, two players at the same time, side-by-side, was all the rage. And uh, if my research is correct, there was only one of those games released, and it was in Japan, and it was a prototype. And it had a unique property to it, if you make it to the high score table and you enter S-E-X as your initials, your initials change to H exclamation point. H allegedly being short for hentai, which, um, according to my research, is Japanese for pervert. So that's a, that's a nice little Easter egg there. Oh, and also another Easter egg with twin kicks is if you set the region to uh, either United States or North America, I don't remember, the picture that you uncover is pictures of world landmarks, but if you have it set to Japan, you uncover pictures of uh, Japanese cartoon characters. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yes, you will. And uh, there were several home versions of, uh, authorized home versions, I should say. Uh, there's uh, there's one for the Apple II, the Apple II GS from uh, 89 and uh, 1990, respectively. Uh, 1989, there was also one for the Amiga, the Atari 5200 and the Atari 8-bit computers got versions of Kicks in 1982, and interestingly, they were completely different versions. I was hoping we were going to get to yeah, this. I don't know the differences, but quite often, as uh, some of you may know or may not know, 5200 and the 8-bit computers from Atari, it was essentially the same version, but with Kicks, it was not. Allow me to elucidate. Please hallucinate. Um, well, that too. The irony is that the 5200 version is better, yet it has less memory than the 8-bit version. Uh, the problems with the 8-bit... Well, first of all, the 5200 version is pretty much almost arcade-like. Um, the score, the numbering, the lettering, you know, all of that looks exactly like it does in the arcade. In the arcade version of Kicks. Uh, instead of actually having a number as to how many lives you have left, it's got like a little graphic of like a little dot, say like four or five brown dots, and where the white dot is and shows you where the um, uh, what life you're on. On the 8-bit version, it just has a number with the num- for the number of lives. The sounds, I guess, are the same. The 8-bit version looks less like the arcade version, which is ironic, not only because of the memory issue, but because this is not a really graphically <laughs> intensive game yeah. in the first place. Soundwise, Kicks has got some really unique uh, sounds in the arcade and on the home. But uh, the thing that really annoys me about the 8-bit version, which, again, you would think the 8-bit version would be able to handle better because of the fact that the 8-bit computers have more memory, is when you fill in a space in the arcade, it goes... And fills it almost immediately, you know? On the 8-bit version, it goes... And it slowly fills the area in. Hmm. The 5200 version doesn't do that. It does the... When it fills in the thing. When it fills in the area that you've uh, you've drawn off. 
Surprisingly, the 5200 version with the wonky analog controllers actually works rather well with that controller. Really? Uh, in my experience, I should say, anyway. But um, if you're going to play either version, only play the 8-bit version, the 8-bit computer version once just to see what it is, but then go right to the 5200 version. The, the 5200 version was converted for the 8-bit computer. In fact, all of the uh, 5200 exclusives, I think, at some point were converted to work on the 8-bit computers. Just look on Atari Age for those. But yeah, get the 5200 version. The only thing I don't like about the 5200 version, it's the same thing I don't like about the 8-bit version, is because, well, I mean the 5200 conversion to the 8-bit, is that because it has one button, what happens is you're always automatically on fast mode. So you can go accidentally into the main part of the play field. Hmm. And if you want to slow down, you have to hold the button before you move off. I don't like that. But that's given the fact that the joystick only has one button and it's really kind of inconvenient to go and hold the keyboard, you know, space bar or whatever down to do a slow draw or whatever. I guess that's the best compromise you could come up with. But uh, yeah. still, go with the 5200 version. It's much, much better than the uh, 400, 800 XLXE home computer version. Right. But uh, anyway, there were two versions for the Commodore 64, one released in 1983, another in uh, 1989, uh, there was a version for the NES, for the Game Boy, the Atari Lynx, and uh, MS-DOS. And I think that's it for the original home versions. Uh, I know I had one for Amiga that was a public domain game. It was called uh, Tricks, I think, T-R-I-X. I thought that was a serial. I know, but what do Silly I know? Silly rabbit. And uh, let's see, there's there's some kind of spin-off home versions. Like uh, for the Sharp X sixty eight thousand, there was Fancy Kicks, and uh, Fancy Fancy because you revealed the picture when you uh, drew your uh, orders. Uh, for the PlayStation, there was Battle Kicks. Uh, Nintendo Game Boy Color in nineteen ninety nine, there was Kicks Adventure, which was Kicks but combined with an adventure story with Japanesey kind of cartoon characters in it. Very typical of the nineties. Uh, there is Kicks Neo for the Sony PlayStation, and of course I mentioned Ultimate Kicks for the Sega Genesis, which is the home version of uh, Volfide. And um, those are the at least the main home spinoffs. I should. Uh, I didn't realize it had so many spinoffs. I know. I, know. I, I didn't realize how popular that for like the Kicks concept was. If you think about it, it's really kind of basic. It really is. Um, huh. I, huh. I did not know this. I learned something today. But anyway, since you learned something today, tell me about uh, the past. Where Do you, do you remember uh, the first place you saw and or played uh, Kicks? I think I do. I think the very first place I played it was, and I'll give you a hint, it wasn't Putt-Putt or Aladdin's Castle. Uh, let's not see. Not any Aladdin's Castle. Oh, not any. Uh, okay, was it, uh, oh, was it that beef place in Plainfield? Nope. You're about Mab a mile or so away, though. Uh, was it the locksmith place? Nope. That's way further away. Hmm. Let's see. Uh, Sound Investment Hut? Records and Tapes. Sound Inve okay, yeah, because when I started going to Sound Investment, they didn't have games anymore. It was just records. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the first place I ever played Kicks. Huh. I don't know where I first played. I might not have played Kicks in the arcade until after the Golden Age, like after the crash, really. Because I just, I always knew about it. I just never spent a token on it. So I don't know. I mean, I I play it now. Like if I if I'm at uh, the Ghost or uh, Underground Retrocade, I'll play it. Uh, the Retrocade they have a cocktail version, and I think that, well, I know the Ghost has the uh, 
full-size cabinet version because I'm pretty sure Doc is not a fan of uh, mm-hmm. cocktail tables. Not only is he not a fan, but he doesn't really have any room for those. You know, if I was going to get a cab of any sort, I would go for a cocktail. But then Me again, too. I mean, given my uh, my space and the fact I really couldn't justify putting a full arcade cabinet in here anyway, yeah. a cocktail table would be just perfect because you could put your drink on it and toss yep. magazines or whatever when it's not in use. So it would be multifunction. Hey, there was a cocktail Ms. Pac-Man used as a restaurant table at Hamburger Mary's in my neighborhood, and it was playable, too, so they actually had it plugged in. They didn't have it for very long, though, but anyway. Are we going to talk about scores? Yeah, I guess we could. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, this is interesting. The way Twin Galaxies has it, they have two different tracks for kicks. One of them is factory settings. Now, this is weird, because I couldn't figure out how to change the settings, because there are no dip switch settings, at least in MAME. So, it's craziness and when i uh, originally loaded kicks in mame i was given some kind of menu to choose a language and i had no mm-hmm. idea how to operate it. and i accidentally chose french oops and um even after deleting the config file it's still stuck in french so i don't know how to change it. it's a good thing that i took a few years of french in high school and college so i can kind of get by i think uh gosh i don't remember how you do that i pretty much all Taito games, when you're doing them in MAME and emulation, will come up with a language select screen. I know Zookeeper did that. I know Space, uh, for a fact that Space Dungeon get, does that, which we have on our list of a game to do, but they haven't paired it with anything yet. And it obviously Kix does it. Uh, but I think all those earlier Taito games do come up with that. Now, like Elevator Action and Jungle Hunt don't do that. But those based on that particular hardware, you know, the, the Kix hardware definitely do. Anyway, the uh, factory settings track uh, dictates a difficulty level of two, uh, three start units. I don't know what that means. I guess that means lives. Uh, your minimum threshold, 75%. Time, oh, my computer just rebooted. I guess it means the installation finished. Uh, Yay. <laughs> 32 seconds in the timeline. And with these settings, Bill Camden has the Twin Galaxies record verified by referee on January 15th, 1983 with a score of 1,666,604. Now, the really fascinating thing is that there's also a true factory settings track. Oh? And there are no scores on it. So if anybody has access to a kicks machine and could get your kicks difficulty set at the following, submit a score, you got the world record. Difficulty for screen one is zero, and difficulty for screens two, three, and four is one. Threshold, uh, 75%. Timeline 37 seconds and the rules on Twin Galaxy with this settings with these settings, pardon me, say, and I quote, any and all strategies are allowed. These are the true factory settings, according to the kick service manual on page eight under 1.7.1 game adjustments. So that's maybe I should read the manual. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should RTFM there. So uh, there you go. So there's no record under that uh, track, at least as of uh, yesterday. Uh, Orcade.com, basically, they follow the same settings as the factory settings from Twin Galaxies. Joe Snavely has uh, not quite the same score as Bill Camden. He only has 164,284 performed at Galloping Ghost on April 5th, 2015. Uh, I might uh, might add that uh, that's a great name. What, Joe Snavely? Yes. Yeah, I thought so too myself. Puts my name to shame, but there you are. But so, so yeah. Let's talk about kicks. Yeah, let's. This is one of those games that when you see it in the arcade, 
It's nothing really flashy, with the exception of how your uh, marker comes into the screen and in the movement of the kicks itself. Yeah, really, if you're lucky it, enough it, to see it and, and see it in the arcade, because kicks just keeps getting harder to find. Mm-hmm. But this is not a visually impressive game at all. This is really, with the exception of Pong and maybe you know a few of the Pong variants, this is the most bare bones looking game of the era. Really, it well, was I in, in my opinion. I mean, it's, you're just basically drawing lines and just a, a brown, and, and you're marking off brown and blue areas. It's really, really basic, plain looking. That having been said, this game's got some pretty good sound effects. They're f- the sound effects are perfect for what the game is supposed to be, like arcs of electricity and stuff. Uh, the the buzzing sound yes. of everything going on, the sizzling of the uh, the fuse, and you know when you let off of one of the buttons. The sound it makes when you die. The sound of your uh, marker coming onto the screen. The uh, the sound the kicks makes. The sound of when you know you mark off an area. 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 The, the sound effects in this game are really really good. That's I think where this game really shines in the audiovisual department is the sound effects. Gameplay. It's basic, but it's really. I, I, this is a really fun game, even though the gameplay itself is pretty basic. You know it's. A classic, and um, people have often wondered why it's never been ported to the Atari 2600. Uh, there have been discussion after discussion about that on Atari Age over the years. Uh, basically, it's having to keep track of the areas that you've corked off, which is uh, you know not something that you really have to do with uh, with a game like uh, Amadar, which is similar in many ways. But um, yeah, it's a really fun game. It's nothing really impressive to look at. You got to appreciate the math involved in what the uh, oh man, in yeah. the way that the kicks moves, because uh, that's uh, that's really kind of beautiful in its own way. But I yeah, can't begin to fathom the math that uh, uh, Randy Pfeiffer had to use in mm-hmm. addition to the way those things were programmed back then. Oh man! <laughs> and knowing, uh, <laughs> and it's probably really something really really complex that could be probably programmed in like four instructions <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> I, i've seen more than i've seen more than my share of people doing programming magic like that oh yeah but um yeah you know i really really like this game me a too lot. me too but um it's not a five but it's a very very strong four in me my too opinion. me too four continues out of five for me and the way i see it it's is it core it's not like top tier core maybe second tier yeah like maybe in the lines of uh, mr do yeah, yeah i can see that yeah it's uh, definitely one you'll want to want to have around. And oops, I actually put that number four in the wrong. And by the way, while I'm thinking here. about it, something I just observed lately: I've passed a lot of laundromats in oh. the in in recent years, mm-hmm. and here and even during the California trip, my wife and I took something I noticed you don't see in laundromats anymore: video games. Nope, you that's don't. interesting. You just have. Washing machines, maybe a vending machine, maybe a TV, and that's it. And you know what? I want to think that I've seen more than my share of a kicks machines in laundromats. Yeah, which is exactly why I was kind of going to bring this up, because it seems, even though I've never seen a kicks in a laundromat, it seems like it would be kind of a laundromat game. I, th- well, I want to think I've seen more than my share of them hmm. in laundromats. And I think you could call this one a laundromat game. Oh, could I? You you could. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm allowing you to, because I'm just that congenial. Well, I do appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, not a problem. Well, 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 I think maybe we should probably move on. Do you think? Oh, should we move on to our next game? Well, maybe, mayhaps. Yeah, maybe, maybe haps. So, and the game that we're going to talk about next is Quantum. 
Huzzah, Quantum! Huzzah, from copyright 1982 Atari. This is one of two games that uh, GCC made for Atari in the lawsuit over the super missile attack enhancement kit for oh, Missile really? Command. Okay. Oh, this okay. is the other yeah, one, Food I, Fight and hmm. Quantum. And um, this is uh, actually a 16-bit machine. It's got two pokey chips in it. Yep. But um, the object of the game is you got a Comet. It's basically a marker. Uh, but, uh, you know, you basically got a comet, and you're drawing a tail, and you got to basically uh, surround different atomic particles. This game is basically based on, from what I understand, quantum mechanics, hence the name quantum. And, um, or, well, quantum physics, actually, not quantum mechanics, which I guess not much different, but... And, um, yeah, the um, controls are really simple. It's just a trackball. You don't even have a fire button. Just a trackball. And uh, you're moving around, and the faster you go, the longer your your tail gets. And uh, obviously, you get more bonus points for more particles and stuff obviously. like that. But obviously. And I thought this was interesting, because when I was looking at the uh, the manual for the arcade machine, it uh, said it had the Atari MIDI trackball, M-I-D-I. And I'm like, MIDI? Musical interface defi- musical I, I instrument? I don't think that's what they meant. No, because I did some more research in it, because they also have a mini trackball, which is used uh-huh. in... Centipede, and the right. MIDI was used in Quantum and uh, Millipede and Missile Command, I believe. So, yeah, it just means it's the, the mid-range trackball that Atari put out. I don't sure. remember what the name for the larger trackball oh, is. Oh, I hate I, that large one. Yeah, I don't think it's called Maxi, but I was doing some research, uh, actually, on trackballs a little bit uh, when we were going to record the show, actually, yesterday, on the 14th of August, and... Uh, they have all sorts, you know, looking up catalogs and all sorts of parts, but uh, there's a, uh, you if you mount the ball higher than the, the, the large one, there's less chance of you actually pinching your skin between the ball and the uh, the control panel, which I thought was uh, really interesting. So yeah, so this is a, a vector game, actually, a color vector game. So yeah, you just basically got to surround things with, uh, with the tail of your comet. Uh, yeah, score at the top of the screen, lower left. Uh, <laughs> I kept trying to circle these two items on the lower left of the screen but i could never do it then i realized oh that's uh, my live indicator life indicator oh boy so uh, there was a reason why you couldn't do that just like millipede you can select what level you want to start at you just circle you know the level you want to start at which with the trackballs sometimes maybe a little easier said than done i will say that i did try playing this in emulation because lord knows i haven't seen a quantum machine in eons i did try it with my uh, sega sports pad and um, yeah, actually, it worked better with a uh, with an analog joystick than it did with my Sega Sports Pad. But that mm. could just be the quality of the uh, the Sports Pad. Then, of course, the fact that you pretty much have to hold that, and it's not just something that's down solid that you can just you know go to town on. Probably had a lot to do with it too. But well, as far as uh, scoring goes, there are uh, many different, many, many, many different uh, items oh, that yeah. you can uh, surround. Uh, first of all. You have um, the nucleus itself, which each level has many different nucleuses, nuclei. Uh, they move slowly around, and they bounce off the screen edge, and those are 300 points. Now, if a nucleus goes through your tail before you can encircle it, it cuts your tail off, basically. So you got to watch out for that happening. You also have an electron, which is worth 20 points. Those rotate slowly around the nucleus. A trifon, which looks like a diamond with diamonds on each of the corner. She moves slowly around the screen. Those are 100 points. Uh, it leaves a tried in its trail. Say that 10 times fast. 
There's an item called the splitter, which splits into three and then splits into three again. Those are worth 100 points. A photon, which spins across a screen, exits, goes off the side of the screen to the other side, 200 points. Positron, which are made of stray electrons after a nucleus explodes. Uh, those are worth 200 points each, which they should be worth more because those are almost impossible to encircle. The trid, which slowly shrinks away and disappears. I'm reading this all exactly out of the manual here. Uh, it's worth 300 points. And there's a little square object called a pulsar, which pulses as it travels towards the comet. That's worth 400 points if you can just circle that and destroy it. With the pulsar, it like shoots like this beam straight up, and then it branches off. Into, it looks like a, a pair of arms hugging the square dot in the middle, which is quite nice to know that the game actually loves me enough to give me a hug. Aww. Yeah, isn't that awesome? So those are the different enemies in the game. Later on in the game, two nuclei will form a bond. And if your comet goes through the bond while it's red, you know, it'll destroy you, of course. Uh, You can still circle the nuclei to destroy them. You can circle two or more objects for double points. It's really, uh, really fascinating because the faster you spin the trackball, the longer the tail of your comet is. Uh, The slower you spin it, the shorter it is. So it's all based on how fast you can spin the trackball, which is an interesting mechanic there. And this is something I have never seen. There's two things with this game that I've never seen in any other arcade game ever. And I think it's both of these are unique to Quantum. First of all, in the attract mode, if you go to, I think it's the third screen in the attract mode, it actually lets you try try the mechanics of the game for free without popping a token in. It'll show uh, a nucleus on the screen. It'll say, try capturing this atom. And underneath it, it says, move the trackball. And it'll allow you to try to circle the nucleus uh, in a track mode, which I've never seen a machine actually do that before. Maybe it's happened. I've never seen it. And then also on the high score screen, to put your initials in, you got to circle the letters, which you got to be careful because <laughs> because you could accidentally circle letters you don't want, which yeah. I really don't like that too and, much. And if you're not but, used to it, you'll run out of time before you finish. Right. You know how many DBs I have in my high score table? <laughs> oh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> but uh, if you get the high score in the game, it actually allows you to draw your your name or really anything you, you draw want, anything you know, yeah, but, within yeah, a lot a lot of time within a lot of time and i've never seen that in an arcade game either so those are kind of nice uh nice things with that but yeah the fast the longer you go on the faster the game gets and i believe it's the it's either the i think it's the photon you get a lot of those you can and later in the game um the only way you pass to the next round is circling the nucleus yeah the new all of the nuclei to get to the next to the next level but uh that's pretty much the game. Um, again, this game isn't really that impressive looking, I guess, but it's got some really great sound effects. It's really like like Kicks. It doesn't have the greatest spe- greatest visuals, but I mean, it has great sound effects and uh, the gameplay is pretty good. I was reading that uh, this game actually sold for uh, two thousand ninety five dollars wow. and. Uh, According to Atari employees, and this is going off of information at arcadehistory.com, uh, released December 1982, blah, 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 blah. Atari, Atari employees have said that only 500 of these machines were produced. Which explains why they're so rare today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- I think Funspot, if I'm not mistaken, I think they're the only ones that have it. I believe so. And um, the high score table actually has the uh, initials of some of the uh, the programmers. Betty Tycho, B-E-T. Art and G, 
ART, Kevin Osborne, Kev, Doug McGray, DBM, Mike Horowitz, MAH, and Steve Golson, uh, SEG. Oh, I take it back. Uh, International Center for the History of Electronic Games in Rochester, New York has it, and John's Arcade in Hartford, Connecticut also has it. So okay. basically, the northeast portion of the country, they have it. Nobody else. And this is a, another game that uh, if uh, who, the first arcade in the Chicago area to get it will uh, pretty much have me, as in, uh, have me in their undying gratitude. Because, well, you know, we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, why don't we get to some scores yeah, on this game? Why don't we? Oh. Yes, let's do that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so let's see. Scores, 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 you say, huh? Twin Galaxies, Factory Default Settings. Edward Carpenter has the record there. 2,116,240. Verified December 2nd, 1983 via referee. Referee. Ah. And uh, Orcade.com shows Jason Cram, whom we've mentioned before for other records. He has uh, their record at 380,340 which was performed May 31st, 2014 at Fun Spot during its 16th annual Classics Championships. Total classic. Yeah. So, did wait, did you say where you first played uh, Quantum? Uh, I did not, but, uh, yeah, the first place I played it was uh, Lands Castle, Louis Joliet Mall. It was to the left when you entered the arcade, uh, right in the area where uh, iRobot used to be. And I first played it in MAME. Unfortunately. Yep. Because I, I never even heard about it until eh, about a month ago. When I brought it up. Yeah. Huh? And man, it's a shame because when we were like trading uh, uh, notes back and forth for this episode, what did I say about Quantum? I said, it's fun AF. Fun AF. This is a fun game. And you said, what do you mean? What does AF mean? And then I responded, well, it's something that BuzzFeed uses in their headlines all the time. And then you respond, I don't read BuzzFeed because they don't research it properly, unlike the people at Cracked. And then I said, well, that's true, but Cracked does have its moments as well. And then you said, well, doesn't everybody, though, so what can you do about it? And then I responded, well, yeah, I kind of dig what you're saying. By the way, uh, what do you – actually, I don't have to re recall ever. Never mind. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember most of that. <laughs> no. I don't remember waking up this – oh, wait, that's your line. Hey, no. Sorry. This is a very fun game. Yes. I really like this one a lot. I The way that the screen comes in when you start a game and the way that you die, uh, it's all really, really fun. As I was saying, the graphics are what they are. They're not anything spectacular, and I think that might be what hurt this game. But uh, I like how the, the whole thing was based on uh, quantum physics, and uh, I don't know, maybe that seemed a little esoteric, you know, as a game or whatever. But uh, You're esoteric as a game. Well, that is true. But um, this is fun. This is a fun game. Not a classic, not a uh, desert island game, but um, it's one uh, I'd like to play in the arcade every now and then because it's pretty much almost nowhere these days. Yeah. It's not a desert island game. for. In fact, nothing would be a desert island game because, man, first of all, the salt air would uh, play would, hell on it and you'd get sand you had, inside it. And, and unless you had solar panels, how would you plug them in? Yeah. Unless you had a professor with you. Oh, that's true. He could make a, a nuclear reactor from a couple of coconuts. Yep, but he couldn't fix a boat. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the problem with uh, going on cruises with with uh, professors. They don't know basic stuff. But anyway. anyway my rating on this is going to be four continues as well. As man, this is so much. much fun. It really is. And the thing is, I would love to play this with a real trackball. I really mm -hmm. would. Because, man, I would too. using a trackpad or a Logitech trackball, it's just not quite 
I got a feeling that I could I could do a heck of a lot better using a real trackball. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's definitely fun. And we are really going to have to find some way to make a, a, a trip to some of these other arcades so we can play some of these games that they don't have in the Chicago area. Yes, there are games that aren't in the Chicago area. Yep. Quantum, iRobot, there's a few more. Tinkle Pit. Tinkle Pit, yeah. Which oh we got yeah, we, we have to talk to about that yeah yeah we forgot to talk about yeah, that yeah we'll, we'll I'll bring we'll bring that up later yes but, but uh, uh, it just occurs to me that I closed out Gmail because we forgot to read uh, the last two parts of Eugenio's email well I still have it so um, oh, okay so well, anyway yeah. um I'll, well why don't we read both of those now all right all right I'll do kicks you do quantum okay go sounds good oh wait I gotta load it up again. Well, all right, well, then, uh, while you're go? loading... Oh, I here will... it is, here it is. All right, so, okay. so what Eugenio says about Kicks is, I first saw this game at the Mall Arcade in my hometown, and I thought it looked interesting. After looking at one guy play the game, I got my quarters ready and gave it a try. Well, I was hooked. Kicks, which is pronounced Kicks, is a peculiar game because of how abstract it is, but it does involve strategy, and that makes the game quite addicting. I always find one of these machines at Free Play Florida or PRGE. Oh, I'd love to go there. And I do enjoy playing them. Now, I do have two versions that I also enjoy, the Atari Lynx port and the Atari 5200 port. Both of these are nicely done, though they are not the same. The former makes some visual changes but keeps the gameplay exactly the same. The latter is more faithful to the arcade in terms of looks. Then, of course, there's Ultimate Kicks in the Sega Genesis. This version takes the game to a whole new level visually and even makes the kicks itself more interesting because it changes shape based on the theme of the level you're on. So instead of just a bunch of lines that move about, you may be dealing with giant crabs, winding <coughs> snakes. Less said the better. Or even a clutching fist. Whoa, wait. Uh, that wait, just wants to uh, smash oh. you. Wait, watch out for winding what? Oh. Yeah, winding snakes. Is this, are we turn, is this turning into my dad wrote a porno? Yeah, I think so. Huh. Uh, Jack grabs winding snakes or clutching a fist. Yeah, it's turning into my dad wrote a poem. By the way, you may know this game with another name, Volfide. If you guys haven't given this updated port a try, I highly recommend it. All right, here's the thing. You talked about how the Kicks graphics are very basic and not really attractive. Mm -hmm. I I really don't like the newer Kickses. I don't like Volfide. I don't like, like the newer ones with the unveiling the picture and all that. Because they're just too, you know. I mm-hmm. I like my kicks to the be basic, so I kind of disagree with uh, <laughs> with Eugenio. Unfortunately, with kicks this. doesn't need very souped up graphics. What it has is very basic, but I think it fits the the game theme and concept just nicely. All right. So, uh, what about uh, his thoughts on Quantum? Well, number twelve, Quantum. This is one game, and take solace in that we're talking about Quantum. This is one game I knew nothing about until a couple of years ago when I was attending Florida Arcade and Pinball Expo. I was walking around the arcade area to see what games they had and bumped into this trackball game I had never seen. It was Quantum. I watched the attract mode for a bit and then gave it a try. Started off a bit slow, which it does, uh, but things started to get a bit hectic soon. There was no one else waiting to play the game, so I stayed at the machine for quite a while. I had fun and even set a high score. I had no idea how long that lasted. In any case, I've not seen another one of these since then, and keep, and keep an eye out at retro events. Sadly, there are no home versions of this game, at least none that I'm aware of. I know there were supposed to be a clone of the, there was supposed to be a clone of this game called Tachyon for the Atari 8-bit family of computers, but that was never released. Well, that's all for now, guys. More than enough, I'm sure. Until next time, 
Going to the Final Frontier Gaming, Eugenio. Thank you for the email, Eugenio. Thanks. We appreciate that. Yes. And, and, and don't worry about being too long. It helps us pad out the length of these episodes. Yeah, exactly. Like, the, the, the more feedback we get, the less work we have to do. So, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, you can reach us at piefactory at fab4it.com, F-A-B number 4-I-T.com, mm-hmm. or piefactorypodcast at fab4it.com. Both addresses are equally workable. <sighs> Should we reveal the theme for today's episode? Yes. Why don't you uh, do the theme reveal? Why don't I? Yes. Well, these are both games that uh, start with the letter Q that involve drawing. Oh, okay. Yeah. And indeed, yeah, because you got to draw like thing around stuff in quantum. Yep. And you got to draw areas off in kicks. Yeah. So yeah, there we have it. So um, should we uh, take care of the uh, closing stuff? Let us take care of the closing stuff. Like, don't we have people to thank? Yes, we have people to thank. And uh, in case you didn't know, episode 80, Kicks in Quantum, has been underwritten by Paul O'Connor Shoes and Daughters. Paul O'Connor Shoes and Daughters <laughs> of okay. Cork, Ireland. And we'd like to thank our Patreon sponsors, of course. Atari Bytes Podcast, thank you. Rory Coleman, Michael D'Angelo, Kyle Etter, Tim Foley, Richard Grounds. Richard Grounds, by the way, went to Game On Expo in Phoenix, I believe. And mm-hmm. what did he see there? He saw Brian Colon. <gasps> and he also saw a Tinkle Pit machine. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I can't believe that. Although- yeah, I, the thing is, like, I don't know how legit that Tinkle Pit was. I mean, I'm willing to accept that it was an actual Tinkle Pit board, but the cabinet looked a little bit too custom. Yes. It like it was very, like a very generic custom cabinet. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that the marquee was just basically a screen grab from the attract mode that they might have uh, touched up a little bit. Because the thing is, like, Tinkle Pit was only released in Japan. And I'm pretty sure that those Japanese arcade games from the uh, mid 90s, they weren't the same style uh, as the uh, full stand up uprights that we know. They wouldn't have had marquees in that. So I'm kind of thinking that had to be at least a custom cabinet. Could be a legitimate board inside, could have been emulated, I don't know, but the cabinet itself must have been a custom job. But that was really awesome to see that, though, so thank you to uh, Richard Grounds for tagging us on that picture. And also thank you to Art Guglielmo, Nate Lockhart, thank you to New Balance Stores Phoenix, and Greg Polander, and Jonas Rulo, and D. Alex, and Keith Sheehan, and PJ Steele and Steve Steiner, and Underground Retrocade, and Richard Valdez, and of course, as usual, thanks to our friend Steve Tui mm-hmm. for including Pie Factory Podcast on Tuiville.com, T-O-U-H-Y-V-I-L-L-E.com, and a special shout out to uh, Lisa, whom my wife and I met in California, who asked about my Pie Factory Podcast t-shirt, and whose oh. son might have been interested in hearing our show, so I uh, hope, uh, hope you enjoy it. And uh, Lisa's son, I hope you enjoy it. Oh, we should probably talk about what the, what the, we should probably mention what the uh, next episode's uh, games are going to be, right? Yeah, we probably should. Which uh, I totally forgot now. Uh, yeah, because we just decided that right before <laughs> we, uh, we were trying to find a game to pair with the, with uh, with one of the games. And we, well, we'll, we'll just reveal the theme next episode. But uh, yeah, we're going to talk about Reactor and Aliens. Reactor and Aliens. Reactor Ooh, and Aliens. Reactor from Gottlieb and Aliens from Konami. Uh, yes. Indeed, indeed. Indeed. And I guess I know I'm going to be talking about Aliens. 
Oh, okay. All right. I, 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 don't think I know almost nothing about Reactor, so hey. You've played Reactor, though. I've played Reactor, yes. So you know more about Reactor than Aliens, so it's just fair that I talk about Aliens. That's that's very true, yeah. And I've, oh, man, we're get, and we're continuing the trend of talking about movies converted to video games in which I have not seen the movie. Yeah, well, that's not really that hard to do, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Which, but anyway. But anyway, so... With that, I think I'm going to try to get up to Pixel Blast soon and play some Buster Brothers. Ooh, yeah. We need to have, like, go to one of these arcades and have, like, a Pie Factory Day or something, or maybe a tour of the Chicago area. We've talked about We've doing, talked a, about it, but never about doing an arcade tour, the yeah. Pie Factory Arcade Tour of Chicago, but we've Yeah, never the most done we've done is just walk through videos, and that was it. But I was talking, like, maybe doing a tour of, like, bringing people along with us. Yeah, we'll talk about that this offline. That could be fun. But yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Could be. But thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk yeah, to you thanks. again in a couple of weeks. And it's up to you whether you want to listen to us or not. But make sure you hear us. You don't necessarily have to listen, but please hear us. So. Yes, please do. Awesome. Bye-bye. Turned up missing. Ooh, good one. This episode of the Pie Factory podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is The Happy L, composed by Sean Courtney. Love theme from Adenda and Arata was composed by Jim Goble. Follow the Pie Factory podcast online via Facebook, on Twitter at Pie Factory PFP, or on PieFactoryPodcast.com. Support the show at Patreon.com slash Pie Factory Podcast. <laughs>